Hi and hello watchmans and welcome to another edition of The Real Time Show with me, your friendly neighbourhood watchmaker and my even friendlier co-host calling in all the way from Amsterdam, Alan Ben-Joseph. How are you today, Alan? I'm doing well. How are you, dear Rob? Yeah, I am fine, although we should start the show on a slightly somber note as as it's been a difficult week in the watchmaking industry and in our particular circle. Um, Alan, maybe you could say a few words as to why. Yes, so I said dear friend because um, we lost, as far as we know, two important souls in the watchmaking industry. The first one I'll kick off is a, a memory of beloved Offer Huberman, dear friend of mine. He became a friend of yours. He was one of our biggest fans of the podcast, supplied a lot of feedback. He was a member of the Real Time Show Network. Um, to my great, great sadness and disbelief, he passed away recently in a very severe motorcycle accident um, and passed away immediately. Very shocking, very sudden. Uh, he turned 39, left behind an amazing wife, Goni, three beautiful daughters, Annie, Kim, and the oldest, Mia. Um, he was a huge watch fan, fantastic guy, always positive, never talking negatively, great philosopher. He and I had amazing philosophical discussions, not only about watches, but time, um, space, sure. um, sustainability, and everything. So in Hebrew, we say, Baruch Dayan Haimet, may his soul rest in peace. And I want to leave it at that. Um, you also lost a friend. Lovely words, mate. And, and it's very sad news indeed. We also lost, as, uh, as the industry, George Kramer, one of the global experts on Cartier, and I wouldn't pretend to be incredibly close to George personally, although we have worked together on occasion in the past, but he was very, very close to my good friend, our good friend, Robert John Brower of Fratello, and many of the team over there and in other media outlets around the world. So it was a sad week in that regard, but I think it just reminded us all how important the community is and how it's the reason why we do what we do and the the link between us may be watchers but the joy that we share as friends and as people is really the thing that keeps us coming back for more and um although they are gone they shared in our passion while they were with us and that's something that we'll all remember and i'm sure treasure for whatever time we have left so on that slightly somber but i hope optimistic note we shall resume normal service with our Q&A session and our mailbag has been bursting at the seams as usual. I'm glad it isn't a real mailbag, you know, because we'd have had to replace it by now. It's been full of so much uh, interesting mail and a lot of nonsense at the same time. So where shall we start today, Alan? Let's have a look at the contact list, shall we? So let's start off with a uh, easy, a light one, maybe. Um, well, actually, didn't have the bar that easy. So, um, which is a good thing, by the way, dear listeners. Um, I love your question. So, you know what? I want to start with a very deep technical one, Rob, for you. Okay. Um, you're a watchmaker. Uh, you you think you know it all, and you often... And, <laughs> I do not. I do not. And, and, and you know what? It's actually very relevant because you called yourself a serial hater of tourbillons, but... Oh, yeah. You, 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 you had an epiphany 
during Watches and Wonders when we visit HYT, and you even stated on the record on this show that you are going to get that to be on watch. So I almost fell off my chair. Um, so Gabriel sent on WhatsApp in our The Real Time Show Network a question for you watch guys and girls, of course. He asks, what is the use of a tourbillon in a watch? According to Wikipedia, is an addition to the mechanics of a watch escapement to increase accuracy. But besides the fact that it looks cool, he writes in a skeleton watch and a regular watch, I don't really get the purpose. Might just be me who doesn't get it, but does anybody mind to explain? So, Rob, you're the perfect guy. All right, so I'll address a, first, a, a couple of things first about what you said. Number one, you mentioned the real-time network in WhatsApp. What this is, for anyone listening that is confused by that, it's a group of our most dedicated listeners who we have pulled together in a WhatsApp chat so we can discuss elements of the show, get direct feedback, and receive their questions more immediately and store them to be answered on air. If you'd like to join the real-time network, you can just get in touch with us and ask, and we can add you to the WhatsApp group. It's a good way to meet new friends and like-minded people, and at some point, we do plan on all coalescing in one location and toasting the real-time show's success thus far, and also their contribution to it, which has been massive. Secondly, I didn't say I was going to get the Torbion from HYT. I'd love it, but it is over 300,000 francs, and I do not have... I don't have over 300,000 francs. I do have under 300,000 francs, so that's something at least. Um, but no, I mean, I would have to be stupendously rich to be able to justify a watch of that value anyway. And I hope that I'm saying never say never, because if I were that rich, then I would buy it, I think. So I want to jump in. You are stupendously rich because you have <laughs> a big heart. You have an amazing girlfriend. You have loads of friends. And I rolled with you again after many years at a fair. And actually, it's the first time we roamed the holes together because every fair that I've been to where I saw you, you were sitting opposite me at the sales table. So I've seen how much, not groupies you have, which you yeah. do have some, which shocked me, by the way, but okay. Um, but that's a sidetrack. You have actually a lot of friends and everybody loves you and- some make fun of you, but endearingly. But you actually have a lot of friends, and, and that's wealth. And as we start this episode with people leaving the physical world to another wherever they go, um, it's nice to see. So you're stupendous. And I do know one day you'll financially be independent. And HYT will be one of the many of that type of tourbillons you'll buy. Because once you try it, you never can go back. Okay, okay. Well, no, I appreciate that. And you are you are right. I'm very rich in a personal sense, and I, I'm blessed to be chill. But, I mean, in cold hard cash. In terms of cold hard cash, I don't have enough to buy that watch. Um, and I'm, as far as I'm aware, it's illegal to sell one or two of my many friends to fund the purchase of the watch. But um, I'll just have to keep saving, I suppose. And, uh, you know, the thing is, as much as that watch was my favorite one of the fair, it isn't actually to say that it is the one I would buy. I think like I found it most impressive and 
It was the perfect unity of all the elements of HYT watches that I love. Obviously, it's got the fluidic hour indicator, which is a staple in those watches. But the color green is really important to me as well when it comes to HYT. I think that it is as close to uh, a brand calling card as you can get for a color. And I thought that it was just a lovely example of something that we never thought we'd see from HYT brought to life in the way that I would like to see it done. But if they had that same model, perhaps without the tourbillon or in the, that exact same color scheme, but with a moon phase available, then that might be the one that I buy. And it might save me a couple of hundred thousand francs in the process. Although I would be loath to miss out on those beautiful fluid filled glass globules that were rotating around the tourbillon at different speeds. It's absolutely mesmerizing to watch. If you haven't seen this dark eclipse tourbillon yet from HYT, then go on YouTube and have a look at it in operation because it really is fantastic. But to Gabriel's question, what is the purpose of a tourbillon in a watch? Well, Wikipedia is correct. It is an addition to the mechanics of the watch escapement to increase its accuracy. People often refer to it as a complication, which actually isn't technically because a complication is an additional function added to a watch. So even something very simple, like a date can be a complication or a GMT hand can be a complication, far simpler to implement than a tourbillon, but actually, you know, qualify for the qualify qualify for the complication status where a tourbillon does not a tourbillon is just an improvement to the accuracy of the watch and basically what it does is rotate the whole escapement matrix the regulating organ of the watch through a 360 degree circle in a single axis tourbillon or in double axis and triple axis tourbillons it is moving around itself across different planes of motion as well to further increase the accuracy in theory in light of the effect that gravity would have on a hairspring kept in a static position. Now, you might point out that in a wristwatch, that doesn't sound all that necessary because your wrist is moving around all over the place, moving the hairspring's position from crown up, crown down, crown left, right, dial up, dial down, all throughout the day. And so you're probably going to get a pretty regular readout from the spring at the end of each 24 hours. And you would be right because the tourbillon was a complication originally invented by Abraham Louis Breguet and designed for pocket watches specifically, the only kind of watch worn by a, a man and occasionally a woman in those days, and it was kept in a single position in the pocket of a waistcoat, often standing upright. And so any heavy points on the spring or the balance spring, any kind of poising errors, would have manifested quite drastically in a gain or a loss, depending on how they affected the breathing of the spring. And so Breguet conceived this idea to keep the balance moving around and around. And in those days, of course, a, a single axis tourbillon that moves through 360 degrees was more than enough to compensate for those errors. It wasn't really necessary to have the double and the triple, but many people would say now that it isn't necessary at all. And it really is just an expression of watchmaking skill. So Gabriel, you're right. It is to increase accuracy. That's why it was invented. That's what it does. And it may not be that relevant these days, but people still look up to it as the very well one of the very top levels of horological ability and gabriel i hope that answers your question and please keep them coming all right so rob we got a interesting question from gavin he sent us the following hi rob as a fellow irishman now living in the us and a watch nerd i'm interested in the growth of watch buying and collecting over the last number of years some of the supply side metrics are interesting. Rolex, as we all know, makes approximately 1 million watches a year. Patek, on the other hand, has not made 1 million watches in its history. 
when you add up the annual output of some of the high-profile brands like Rolex, Omega, AP, Patek, Richard Mio, IWC, Breitling, etc., in broad strokes, it's around 2 million-ish units. That's not a lot of new watches for an increasing number of people in the world who want them. Do you believe we have reached a point in history where the awareness and interest in luxury watches will always be a multiple of the supply for certain brands? Interest to know your thoughts. Gavin. Well, that is interesting. Yeah, I think that we probably have not reached a point where it's irreversible. I have a feeling that we are going to see an ever-increased amount of watches, uh, a relative increase in the number of watch fans, but I would assume, and I think most anthropological projections agree with me here, that there will be a reduction of global population over the coming centuries, and the vast number of reductions will occur in uh, Western societies. There are fewer and fewer people in, in America and, and Europe, especially Europe and Japan, having children. Uh, these are the main watch-buying markets, maybe not the main watch-producing markets, but China and Africa's birth rates are, well, China's are more stable, Africa's are still pretty high and look likely to continue, possibly even grow marginally if climate situations uh, worsen and child mortality rates increase, heaven forbid. But the main bulk of the watch buying global population is likely to reduce, I would say, significantly enough for those two metrics to meet in the middle. And that sounds a bit, um, I don't know, it sounds almost apocalyptic. I don't mean it to, but like it's, you know, a global population reduction would not be a terrible thing, um, depending on the nature of its um, occurrence. But if it were a natural, um, reduction in the number of people and an increase in individual wealth, then that sounds relatively positive to me. I'm talking long time in the future, like deep time reckoning almost, which uh, may not be exactly what Gavin wants to know. I mean, in the near in the near time, I would say there are more and more small brands popping up, more and more interest in micro brands and indies. There are ever more advanced tools being created and conceived for people that want to get into the watchmaking industry and to facil facilitate those first steps in building relationships and necessary to produce a good quality watch. So perhaps there are even more options at an affordable price point. Perhaps we shouldn't just like look at the big boys and say, oh, there's not enough for everybody because there's, there's something for everybody, I would say. What do you think, Alan? So it's actually interesting what you said. I don't think the population is going to reduce the coming 100, 200 years, but you said centuries and centuries. So let's curb uh, global warming and all other uh, horrific uh, egos and wars and uh, dictators and I don't know what. Until that day, um, where we reach uh, world peace and the global population uh, will either stay the same or, or decline. Um, I liked Gavin's question, but I don't think it's 2 million-ish pieces, right? Because all these brands he mentioned, um, Omega is creeping up to 800,000, almost a million. Breitling is doing already four, 500,000 a year, right? So... 
uh, but okay, it's it's um, maybe peanuts. Um, I think the next three decades, two three decades, although we see a little dip right now, I think that what happened during the COVID period is this huge interest in luxury watches and luxury industry was the peek into a glass bowl to predict what's waiting for us. It has shown not only an appetite for luxury, but it has shown the interest in luxury. And I think we've seen the answer to the hypothesis, which is smart watches will kill the whole watch industry. And people thought that hypothesis will be answered positively. I always said it doesn't. The outcome is negative in the sense that they won't kill regular watches and watch brands and the watch industry. Um, it actually helps because it teaches people to put something on their wrist or to use their wrist for reading time. And I think that hypothesis has been proven now. Although Apple is still the number one watch brand out there in quantity and maybe value, but we have no idea how much money they make on smartwatches because they don't publish that data. So since population is very much growing in Asia, just think about India and China, and you already have gigantic growth of population. And in those cultures, they have a huge appreciation for art and watches. Besides the fact that watches are a very important gift to give for various occasions in the life cycle. Um, it's interesting to see that the US became the number one market today for watches, which it maybe has never been. So that shows a growth of education and knowledge for watches in the US. Um, historically, it was Europe, then Asia obviously took the crown and it used to be only Hong Kong, then it became mainland China. Japan, for a while, took the number one position. Um, and in Europe, it always was UK and Italy. And UK, I think, is still in the number five position for the Swatch. For, sorry, the Swiss watch um, exports, which that data is published. And maybe I just did a Freudian slip of the tongue because Swatch is uh, very keen on dominating that Swiss export uh, market. Um, so I, I don't think that we'll see a diminish in demand for watches and therefore in pricing new or market values on the average. So not segmenting particular brands or sectors of the watch industry. Those are my two cents on the topic, Rob. Yeah, fascinating stuff, and uh, definitely one that we should bring up again around uh, pub table because I think that we could talk for hours on uh, the different ways of looking at this question. All right, next one. You know what I've noticed is really funny. We have like five questions on our list. We're not going to get to them all today, but five of them are from Chris, but not the same Chris. It's five different Chris's, and it's really. <laughs> I noticed the other day when I was scrolling through the real time network that the vast majority of our followers are called Chris, and I have no idea why. Um, but these questions we've got, like, I can't, well, a couple of them, I guess I shouldn't reveal names of, but we've got our friend Christopher Didrickson, Chris Edelston, Chris Thurston, 
Uh, Chris Wright. Oh my God. There's so many Chris's. We're wading through. We're knee deep in Chris's. Okay. Um, let me pick one of the Chris's. Uh, okay. Uh, this Chris <laughs> says, hey, testing this one for today's question. In today's episodes from Watchers and Wonders, he must be talking about the ones he listened to last week, um, brands talk about collectors. Aren't they interested in common people, he says in inverted commas. It seems like everything revolves around us crazy folk, and I suppose he means us very uh, deeply obsessed collectors. I get it that more expensive brands aren't something you walk in from the street and immediately want to buy on impulse, but a Zin, for example are in a price range where anyone could go into a store and buy something straight up. What do you think about that? Do you think that the higher-end brands are interested in attracting common people up to that level, or do they just allow for the watch industry to push people in that direction over time? It's an interesting one. I mean, firstly, I guess some of our listeners will say, well, not anybody can walk into a store and buy us in just without thinking about it, and certainly not at the price point of some of their newer models that we did see in Watches and Wonders that were very nice. They're... Um, titanium and gold bronze hybrids were delicious but they were also creeping up there towards the 5k mark especially for the all bronze gold one but what do you think alon do you think the big brands and let's just take some random names like uh i guess we could do this in two ways one the really haute orangerie brands like hyt or uh crayon or over uh, for example are they interested in common people speaking to common people at all or do they just not care and what about brands that normally or in the past were at least something uh, a regular human could aspire to own at some point like a rolex or an omega or a longines for example where do you come down on this thank you chris one of the many chrises uh for the question um i want to state first and foremost it is the normal folk or the common people as you referred to us which rob and i are also just plain regular guys and we, we're not watch snobs and we like every time telling device doesn't matter about the value of brand or bragging rights it might give you the problem is i think that and and both watch brands and media are to blame in this sense that because media needs sensation as clickbait or to get eyeballs, right? To get the article read. So whenever a watch brand might launch 30 references where 29 are plain vanilla and that one exceptional piece is uh, the cherry on the cake, limited edition or is crazy or collab or whatever, gets all the media attention, right? So then it skews the opinion of the receivers of the message. So the readers, uh, us, the common people. Um, so, and, 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 and I guess we are to blame as well, right? Rob and I, on this show, we talk about the highlights and we don't talk about the evolutionary pieces, let's say, or the more plain watches. Um, let's let's talk, for example, about Fred Constant. It might be, and I need to watch out, I need to thread carefully, the most accessible brand at the Pal Expo, if I'm not mistaken. Looking at price points, and maybe they were the only brand with quartz watches on the fair. I'm not quite sure, but maybe Rob, you help me out here. But they have watches starting at 400 euros. 
So they launched amazing plain vanilla, 12 in a dozen, time only classic dress watches with Roman numerals, uh, silver dial, black strap, right? But nobody talks about them. Everybody spoke about the tourbillon they launched or the collab they did with Revolution Magazine. That's unfortunately how things work. Um, so, but I think the money in the watch industry, not only Swiss, also take Japan, for example, 80, 90% of the money is made with the watches for the common people. So, do they forget that? I don't think so. Um, I don't, do you want to jump in here, Rob? Uh, do, do you do you catch my drift? I'm I'm really brainstorming here on the mic. I definitely catch your drift, yeah. Um, but I think that maybe the brands that were referenced in Chris's question don't care so much about appealing to those uh, entry level customers directly because they feel like someone else is going to do it for them. And I think it's part of the watch ecosystem. Every brand plays a role within it. And I think that's okay. Not every brand has to be everything to every person and every brand should know its customer base. So although it seems a bit dismissive and like maybe uncomfortably elitist for these brands to just not give it obvious damn about their potential customer base, they know what they're doing. They, they play a role. They operate in a price segment that very few people will ever reach. And I actually think that's okay. Yeah, I don't feel too bad about it. Oh, hang on a second. Did you hear that? It's a doorbell. Stay there. Stay there. It might be a watch. <laughs> it was a watch. Live on air. I've received a new watch. Ooh, something. It's a Ming. Whoa. Congrats, Rob. It's my first ever Ming. Yeah, it's actually your own, and this is not one on loan to test drive on the show. No, no, I, I bought it. Um, well, I paid 50% deposit about a year ago, actually. It's taken about a year to arrive. And I paid the balance just a few weeks ago. Uh, it's the GMT Gilt version that you might have seen released. Um, well, yeah, I guess last year. The other version, the Kyoto, the sort of more silver-toned one, delivered a few weeks back. And now I have my, my very own Ming. How interesting. Okay, Congrats. I'm actually unboxing it live on air. Gonna leave this in. Why not? It's all part of the uh, journalist experience. This is really oh, oh, oh. not planned, guys. This is this is really spontaneous. It really is because it's been stuck in Leipzig Customs Hub with DHL for the past two weeks because they are bloody useless. I hope you're listening to this, Leipzig. You need to pull your finger out every time. Like anything other than I don't know, even a, even a letter can cause them problems. Comes into the country, they hold it for months, and then they just charge you crazy amounts of money for their own incompetence. But anyway, I've got it now, and I've got some extra straps with it as well. So let's have a look at those first. Very nice. A couple of extras. How beautiful. And in the leather roll, it's a shiny leather roll. It's shinier than I was expecting, I have to admit. It's a bit bit porno, but I, I quite like it. Let's have a look. Oh, it's nice. Very dainty. Very delicate. It's beautiful. Um, Yeah, okay, so... It comes with a cardboard box, like a, a sleeve, and then there's a, a canvas bag um, with a little leather Ming tag on it. And then inside that, there is a Ming pouch um, in leather with Ming debossed in silver in the middle of it. And then inside that, there's a plastic bag. And inside the plastic bag is the watch itself. And 
I have here my very first Ming, which is, yeah, much smaller in real life than I was expecting. And, uh, yeah, rather beautiful. It has this sort of teal dial, a gold center uh, to it. Um, high ceram loom engraved on the underside of the crystal. So that's something I need to get my my uh, torch on very quickly. It has a modified, by the looks of things, uh, ETA 2892 or Solita SW300, I guess. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. It's a GMT, so 301 probably. And it's all blackened, and I think that modification has been, by, been done by Schwarz Etienne. And it has a brown Berania strap, and I've got two spare straps here. I've got a black leather one and a dark chocolate Berania as well, which also looks rather handsome. So there we go. Live unboxing of a main. Couldn't wait to put it on. Have you got one, Alan? I ordered one. My buddy, Ruben, who helps me out with Red Bar Amsterdam, an ex-Team Ace member, he has one. Um, which I actually had the honor to help him obtain it during a meetup of Red Bar Crew Amsterdam. So that was cool. Um, so my commission for helping out was to have it on my wrist for a week. And I ordered mine before ever even holding a Ming watch. So I took a risk on that. So my before I answer your question, Rob, uh, shotgun question to you. You open it, your first response, in love or you're on the fence still? You know, funnily enough, it's actually the first time I've ever seen a Ming watch in real life as well, I think. And it looks, um, the quality is very good. The watch looks a lot smaller in diameter and a lot taller than I was expecting. So it's it, it has a very small visual impact, as you know, I focus on quite heavily. The high ceram loom hands are absolutely exceptional. They take really well. I've got it under a UV torch already. The dial... I'm sorry, not the dial, the crystal loom that replaces any need for loom on the dial is not as good. Although the homogeny is pretty good when you get it in the dark. It, when you put it under a UV light, quite interestingly, the crystal loom appears green and the hand loom appears blue. But then when you get it in real life, they're both blue. Um, it's not bad, actually. It's not bad. The straps are exceptional quality, I have to say. Let's see who makes these. Um, I think Rousseau, they work oh, with Rousseau, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yeah, there's Jean Rousseau, you're right. Yeah. Well, no wonder. But, I mean, you know, that's a funny thing, isn't it? Like, I, I I, commented on the quality before I even realized who made them, but they are absolutely top draw. Everything's very precise. Everything's very clean. I think the flat crystal perturbs me a little bit because it looks a bit... It makes the whole dial look a bit more boxy than I was expecting. It's perhaps less elegant um, than I imagined in some ways and, and more dressy in others, which is a weird combination, you know? You would think those two are almost synonymous, but I mean, it's got a bit more of a sporty edge to it uh, proportionally, and yet the ubiquity of polished surfaces really leans a little bit more to, well, not a watch of evening wear, but I think it's a superb business watch, perhaps even better on a black strap or something a little more subtle than the nice Berania cognac brown I have. But yeah, um, it's interesting. That's very interesting to hear. So... What I was curious about to find out in 3D, in the hand, in the flesh, is um, why I was drawn to Ming is because it's new. They started, I believe, five, five and a half years ago. They have their own design language. They are rather contemporary with a huge respect for old watchmaking traditions. I think their design code is very minimalistic designs, clean rather contemporary and in their case their signature is always their lugs right yeah yeah that's so right. how do you like them how do you like the lugs 
Yeah, the lugs I'm very impressed by, I have to say. The lugs are as sharp and as identifiable as you would expect from the images on the internet. I think that the K-shape is really to thank for main success and one of the things that the, any brand could hang its hat on. So they've done a really good job there. The crown is also nice, um, well-machined, an unusual sort of, I guess, futuristic onion interpretation. Case back is good. The case back view is interesting enough. You know, at this price point, I think it was about 3200 3300 It's not cheap, but it's also not, you know, an incredible outlay for a small brand with such cachet as Ming. So, yeah, I'm I'm pretty impressed overall. I think it's worth the money if you're a, a an avid watch collector. I think if it were your first and only watch, you might want something a bit more mainstream. But I think that, you know, anyone that's got three or four watches could happily find a place for a ring in their collection. So I have a bonus question for our listeners. Um, you mentioned while you were unboxing, uh, I need to get my torch a little. Explain to our listeners why you want to do that. Well, I'm a bit of a loom fanatic, as you may know, and I like loom to be very well applied and evenly applied and to have a good even glow or loom homogeneous, I call it, between the hands and the indicators wherever they may be placed. And in, in this instance, they're on the underside of the crystal rubber and the dial itself. So I wanted to get my UV torch, which was very kindly gifted to me by the Black Badger himself, onto this watch as soon as possible. Black Badger is the pseudonym of... James Thompson, who is a loom and material specialist, whom I work with primarily for Arcanaut. He's one of the co-owners of the brand, and he is based out in Sweden, and he knows about all things that glow. So, yeah, his equipment is top-notch, and it had a great effect on the dial and on the crystal when I lit it up. You mentioned Black Badger. How awesome would it be if they did a collab? What, Black Badger and Ming? Yes. Well, I can set it up if you want it to happen. I mean, I do, I do. Please do. Okay, I'll have a word with him today. I'm actually speaking to Ming this afternoon because we're going to get them on the show. So um, we'll have we'll have someone from Ming on the real time show in the next few weeks. I would guess. Amazing! Can't wait. So we totally lost our threat in our question. I think we kind of reached a natural end to that one. Okay, um, or right. at least that was my feeling anyway. Like I, I think it's okay. And I think that, like, as Chris correctly identifies, no, brands don't really always care about the common man on the street, and probably nor should they. And that's that's part of branding, I think, to know your audience. I totally agree. So, um, should we jump to the big one by another Chris? I think the big one is from Matt, isn't it? The big one from Matt Wright. Wait, it's so big that I need to scroll. Yes, sorry, it's Matt. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. So um, he, he does this uh, thing at the top of the question, which I only recently learned what it meant because I'm a bit of a techno dinosaur, techno dinosaur, techno dinosaur. I'm not particularly technologically inclined. He starts off with TL semicolon DR, which apparently means too long, don't read. And what you can expect to see after that little abbreviation is a quick summary of a question and the quick summary of the question i'm about to read out in full is who is the new gerald genta now matt goes on to say and it's quite nicely written so bear with us i'll try and do it justice i mean honestly gerald genta was great and all but isn't it time to stop trading on his name what happened to the industry when gerald genta was all fame and fortune but now the designers are largely hidden from view in other areas of fashion, designers are put front and center, and brands understand that designers can have a cult following and help build a brand themselves. 
One example is Virgil Abloh over at Louis Vuitton. Luxury fashion brands do not hide their creative directors. They are lures. There are even great reality TV shows that try and find the next it thing in fashion. Fashion is designers, except in watches, in which nameless and faceless brands don't show who's behind them. In the watch world, with the exception of Cedric Bellon, I found you guys through him and my CB01 is excellent, and XJC, who I find because Fortis is thankfully proud of their designer, I, that's Xavier, I can name exactly no other watch designers who I can see or follow their career. I can't follow them from brand to brand or watch them develop as designers, etc, etc. I find a personal story more interesting than a brand story, and I can't be the only one. I am not talking about artists who do watch collabs where the watches just look like their art, and he puts Alan Zilberstein in that pile. That's something completely different. So his main questions are, here we go, <laughs> who are the up-and-coming watch designers who the insiders like you guys know behind the scenes but are kept in a closet and locked up with NDAs because watch brands are too closed-minded to understand what the broader fashion world understands, which is that people like to follow designers, get invested in designers, and designers can help build the brand. It seems that there are some names in the high horology world, but for us mere mortals, please limit the answer to people like Cedric Bellon and XJC who design watches for normal people. And question two, or part two, is there something inherently different with the watch world today where designers are generally kept in the closet unless their name is Gerald Genter? What am I missing? Then he offers to hang out with us in Utah if we're ever in the area. So uh, cheers, Matt. We will. I was actually in Utah last May um, in Zion. Uh, so hopefully I'll have reason to go back soon and I'll give you a shout if I'm in the area. All right, Alan, I've said enough. My throat is about to collapse in on itself. So you go ahead and answer this one. Matt, thank you so much. And thank you for using the contact form. Amazing. I love it. And actually, Rob and I have been talking a lot about this topic and we want to do something about it. We are actually getting more and more designers on the show. We had a few. We recorded already quite some episodes that will air soon. And we're even talking about setting up the real-time show symposium. And we're hesitating to do it only for designers and no guests and no recordings. Or maybe we'll split it in half. Maybe we'll do it with an audience. So we, in general, agree with you that... They're kind of the best kept secret in the watch industry. But I do think that the fashion industry skewed too much to the other side where everything hangs on the designer. I'm taking Tom Ford in relation to Gucci, for example, or a blow with Vuitton, which you addressed yourself. Unfortunately, he passed away. A blow. And they fall into a gap, but Vuitton is that strong that can survive without a famous designer. Gucci technically was also so strong in an old brand, but they let themselves be so depending on an external designer like Tom Ford that their market share went nose down, deep dive, and crashed almost. So it has a danger. Now, I do think that the watch industry opened up a bit because also a lot of watch brands are owned either by Louis Vuitton Group, LVMH, or Richemont, which has a little bit of design brands. Um, but for the record, back in the day, nobody spoke about Gerald Genta. Brands bought his designs off the shelf. He literally designed and then shopped around 
and then somebody picked a design out of his portfolio, literally. Um, so for me today, the new Gerald Genta, um, I have two names pop up. It's Eric Giraud, who is freelance and makes amazing designs. He does get a lot of credit, but not enough in my humble opinion. And um, Fabrizio Buonamassa Staglioni, he is amazing. The problem is he's locked in into one brand, right? So I'm very curious to see what else he can and would design if he wasn't exclusive with one brand. Now, you've mentioned Cedric Bellon. Um, I'm not objective here. I'm a huge, huge fan. He's a real hidden gem. Uh, works for many brands, and there are even designs that he's, because of an NDA, not allowed to speak about, but I know what he has designed. He's amazing. We're going to have a guy both, Guy Bove, for the French-speaking people, but since he's not French or Swiss, it's uh, Guy Bove. He's coming on air. He's an amazing gentleman, delicate soul, very philosophical, an amazing designer. So keep an eye on that episode that will air rather soon. Um, Davide Serrato is an amazing designer. He's going to come on the show soon. We hung out with him in Switzerland as well during Watches and Wonders. You want to go, and I know you're going to steal the name that's on the tip of my tongue, so here goes. Go. Well, it's, it's your own fault because it should have been top of the list, in my opinion. That's Sylvain Berneron, our friend who came on the show quite recently and spent uh, three days with us. I think it was in the end of two or three days at geneva watch week and he is obviously attached to brightling right now but the interesting thing about sylvan is he is going to be doing his own brand as well soon so the world will finally get to see what he does when the gloves come off and from what we've seen already i think he's going to be establishing himself as a figure to watch in the next 30 or 40 years of his career as he takes the throne from GG. And the other man that pops into my mind, and a mutual friend of ours, Alon, someone you've had quite a lot to do with recently, is actually Adrian Buchmann, and. who uh, has been involved, we know, with Chapek and behind the Antarctic, and also works with Sequent, and has other irons in other fires that mm -hmm. may one day become a subject of conversation on the real-time show. But, I mean, he's already made a huge contribution to the industry, and I think it would be remiss of us to overlook it. I totally agree, um, and 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 you know also the, the the collab kings are also making interesting segues into design world. So they start as supercharged, almost satirical or sarcastic or pop art ish designs, right? So I'm talking about George Bamford, uh, Romaric, uh, Andre, so second second. George Bamford is maybe a step ahead because he has his own watch brand and he's launching now more timeless watches. So that's interesting to see. Um, we all hope you, me, and many other watch collectors that Romaric Andre will one day create a watch from A to Z. So not just call out. That interesting to see if that will happen. And I want to also give a shout out to, although he's Dutch, but speaks uh, sorry, he's German, but speaks Dutch fluently. Um, Christian Knoop at IWC. He's also fantastic. He's kind of limited because 
he has to stay within the design codes of IWC Schaffhausen. But that's an example for Matt that IWC did put their internal designer on a pedestal. Bulgari did it with Fabrizio, right? So watch brands are slowly doing it. But there are some brands that say, hey, we are the hero, not the designers. It's a team effort. So we don't put anybody on a pedestal, which, for example, is Rolex and Tudor, right? One of the designers that I mentioned in my list was very, very important for the, the, the resurrection of modern-day Tudor. But they are not happy when either he or journalists speak about him and his work. So that's also interesting. And I kind of also think it has a valid point though, right? Because if you exist more than a century or almost a century, it's maybe less important who the designer is. I was listening recently to an other podcast and they were having an interesting discussion about uh, the importance of J.C. Beaver for the watch industry, about his own watches. And I guess it's a symbiosis between the brand and the designer. And they were also speaking about Gelgenta, that they thought, both the host and the guest, the everything Gelgenta launched under its own label, brand, and reign was utter SHIT. And everything for the big names was epic. But not all designs Gelgenta made for big watch brands or sold to them were a success. Actually, none of these designs when they came out and his peak were N60s up until, let's say, the end of the 70s, were an instant hit. It took almost two, three decades for these models to become commercially successful, let alone epic or collectible. Um, so that's also interesting, right? So it's a symbiosis of a good brand and a good designer. Yeah, I think one of the the pitfalls we could easily find ourselves stumbling into when trying to answer this question fully is that it's totally possible that the perfect storm of culture, timing, uh, technological evolution created a figure of uh, Genta's stature that can never really be matched again. Or, well, it probably could be, but in a, in a set of conditions that don't exist right now. I think the the most relevant way to take the question is like, who are the really good, potentially game-changing designs that exist in the industry now? Whether or not they ever go on to have like four or five classics or have their blue, their fingerprints over so much of a brand's development like Genta did in so many ways, I don't know. But I think we highlighted a few of the key guys whose names don't get spoken about in the same way as Genta's. Uh, Fabrizio, yeah, is maybe a bit more of like a celebrity, but when you've got a beard like that, why wouldn't a brand put him front and center? I mean, he's a character as well, isn't he? Like, the designer has to be willing to step into the limelight in some way. So, like, take, take Guy, for example. He doesn't want to attract attention to himself he's a humble man he's like he's focused on his work he's an artist he's a craftsman i'm not even sure sylvan would love to be in front of the camera all the time you know being that figure being regarded as like this icon because there's a huge amount of pressure that comes with that as well fabrizio's got the swagger he's got the look he's got the suits and you know he's perfectly tailored for that kind of lifestyle so it's it's, it's a lot of things at once right 
Yeah, well said. And I wanted to add two more things. Um, I've spoken about Charles Zuber, right, on previous episodes on our review of our visit to the fair. So the first time I've seen the new Charles Zuber watch, um, and it's a, a, a actually a new brand. It's an old name, an epic designer, where they made it into a brand and they created contemporary new watches. I saw the watch. It really attracted me. I said, oh, beautiful watch. And only later, when I studied the brand and the model, I understood it was Eric Giraud, which you and I had the honor to meet him, actually, during the fair. Um, so that's interesting that how important a good designer is, right? Because if the name doesn't say anything, it didn't ring a bell, didn't attract me, doesn't have any stature or, or attraction, and they start from scratch, and how important a designer and therefore its designs are. Now, also, I want to give you a compliment, Rob, because you are also turning out to be quite a, and I'm saying this sarcastically, little designer. Um, <laughs> no, but you, you and I worked on collabs together. So you and I actually designed watches for Nomos together, right? The Ace collabs. Uh -huh. um, behind the scenes, we both know what you and I do and can do. And I designed jewelry, but as a conductor, designed some watches that haven't been produced yet. But I am envious of these amazing designers that you and I just spoke about. But you are a little um, magician because let's talk about Straum. <laughs> Were you now BSing or did you really help out with that design? Because that's an amazing watch, amazing dial. And was that exhibition marketing mumbo jumbo? Or did you guys really do work there? Uh, it was all true, and yes, I was involved in the project from the start because I found out about Straum during the pandemic, I think it was, soon after they launched the brand of the Offav model, and they had a very successful marketing campaign on Instagram, obviously, because me and a couple of my former colleagues also discovered them around the same time, and I decided as the head of partnerships in those days uh, for Fratello to go off and contact these guys and say, hey, let's work together because this is a stunning debut. What you've done here is way beyond anything I expect from a brand in terms of aesthetic ambition with a first step. But there are a few comments I have about the watch and how I would follow it up with a release that I think will tick a lot of boxes and be a very desirable model going forward and be something of a foundational piece that you can build on in the future and so we worked tirelessly Lasse Einstein and I for months on this design back and forth calls every day uh chats on our little whatsapp group and whatnot refining everything we would come up with several options at each stage you know different case diameters case thicknesses bezel thicknesses bezel heights glass profiles uh our markers actually I think Lasse Designed the hour marks entirely. I don't think it had anything to do with that one. Uh, Handset, where the hands should be loomed, which raised some real philosophical discussions. And when we had a look at everything, because I, initially I, I was like, okay, we should probably see what it looks like without the loom in this bottom part of the minute hand, because from a functional perspective, it makes sense to have a gap in the minute hand so you can see the hour hand at all times, regardless of where it is. And we had this like philosophical discussion as to whether it was worth looking at it. And I was like, it's always worth looking at it. And then when we looked at it, we said, okay, let's just go for the double loom because it looks a little sexier. The loomed counterpoise, that was another element of a handset that we added in there so that you could be really precise with the seconds reading rather than having the loom tip on that end of the 
at the dial and what else did we do? Oh yeah, bracelet, bracelet profile, glass profile on the case back, glass shape on the case back, gasket thickness, screw down crown, new movement with a longer power reserve, etc. etc. We went through everything and we talked about it extensively back and forth. And it was wonderful to be able to work with those guys because they know they know their stuff as industrial designers and they came at watchmaking with all of the right how can we say the right emotional approach, the right technical approach. They wanted to do a good job. They wanted to talk to people, to listen and to learn. And like, it's all well and good to have that kind of advice coming from someone like me. But at the end of the day, it was Lass's pen on the page and uh, created these angles and these components. And it was a collaborative process. Yes, of course. And I worked in my role as a development consultant with them to create this new watch and the marketing surrounding it was as extreme and as life threatening slash changing as it looked yes we did go to Yan Mayan we sailed for five days from Svalbard across stormy waters that nearly took out our 70 foot sailing vessel and we attempted to climb Birenberg the world's northernmost active volcano which is covered in several glaciers unfortunately we fell about 200 meters short of the summit but we didn't fall any further which was a significant prospect given the weather and that's where the red dial came from because it was my idea to do a red dial and I said to them in a call, are there any um, volcanoes in Norway? Because it looks like a volcano to me. And they said, well, yeah, there's one, um, but it's on this island. And I said, oh, can we go to the island and climb the volcano? Thinking, oh, that's going to be a nice afternoon out. And as it happened, they'd already decided in amongst themselves to do a collection based on Jan Mayen. But I'm not sure the, they'd had that final push yet to actually get on a boat and go. But we did... And we went together and that was fun. And it's not my first taste of, you know, designing watches. Obviously, like you and I have worked very much on the aesthetics of the Nomos as we've been a part of. And I did the aesthetics on the Chapek and a couple of Minazes. Um, the Minaze, I got the chance to change the second Minaze, the M3 that we did for Fratello last year. I got the chance to change uh, the dial and design new indices and stole the handset from the DeVito for that piece which went down rather nicely. And then the Nevada Grenshin as well. That was another one that I worked on from the start with Balazs and with Guiam. And we uh, pulled that one together rather well, I think. So yeah, I'm getting more and more experience in it. I've already got another two product development consultancy projects in the works, one with Straum looking ahead for something else and one with another brand that I am <laughs> contractually unable to reveal on air. But obviously I do this stuff with Arcanaut as well. But when it comes to working with James and Anders, they are the creative driving force of that brand. And I'm more of a, what can I say, a janitor. I keep things clean and orderly. So, yeah, I'm I'm getting I'm getting into it. But to go back to your first point about Eric Giroux and getting the chance to meet him and realizing the importance and the the real tangible benefit of having an experienced designer like that on board is the fact that we picked up the Charles Zuber with zero expectations and we looked at each other. We we're like, Jesus, this is this is a lot better than we thought it was going to be. And like the bracelet is really something else. And it wasn't until we'd spoken to Marie for a little longer that we realized, ah, okay, oh, it's Giroux, oh, great. And then funnily enough, later on in the day, Alon, after we'd parted ways, I went to Barton 7 and had a meeting with Lerone and they showed me their new collection. And I looked at one model, I said, this is head and shoulders above everything else. Who's who's behind this? Once again, it was Giroux. So maybe he is the best corollary to Gerald Genter in the modern industry. Certainly not me, not yet, anyway. Give me, give me 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's amazing. Um, I really enjoyed this episode. I think um, we should round it up. What do you think, Rob? Yeah, I think we got some 
very interesting questions. Again, like th- there's a lot of topics in this episode that have popped up that I think we could run with for a long time. So like I look forward to dissecting this one in detail with the Real Time Network when we do meet in person, hopefully at Amsterdam, perhaps as part of Amsterdam Red Bar. Alon, how do you think about that? That would be amazing. One plus one is three. <laughs> <laughs> all right we'll go with that all right thank you for listening everybody if you would like to get in touch with us and be part of the show then you can do so by either contacting us on instagram i'm there at rob nuds that's r-o-b-n-u-d-d-s you can find alon there at a-l-o-n-b-e-n-j-o-s-e-p-h or you can contact us via email at either rob at the real show or alon at the real show as our listeners have shown you can also use the contact form on the website www.therealtime.show please like subscribe follow and share the podcast with all of your friends as we'd like to grow the network even further until next time stay safe and keep on ticking <laughs>